0: Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10:30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. It's been a little while since I've been up here, um, but I'm, I'm glad to be back. You know, life has been a little wild, uh, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things going on. But it seems like things are starting to unwind a little bit. There's a little more calm. You know, b- before the storm. So Lord willing, hopefully I'll be up here a little more often, be on rotation a little more. Um, you know, practice makes perfect, and I'm trying to learn how to be a pastor. I mean, look how much, look how long Scott's been doing this. That was, that was a joke. <laughs> um, a couple things really quick I want to, I want to mention. Um, in your bulletin, there's a lot going on in there. Um, Sundays at 6, Scott does a small group back in the chapel, Sunday night seminar. Um, I've been to all of them except for the last two. I got busy with work. I'll, I'll tell you, I've learned so much the last few weeks in that class about the Old Testament, about history, geography, New Testament. I've learned a lot about myself in that class. Highly recommend you guys check that out. This Tuesday, September 6th, at 6 in the Student Center, so back where we do coffee and donuts, um, Matt is kicking off his small group. So be sure to get plugged in there. Um, something else in the bulletins. She, uh, she promised me she would take me on a date if I brought this up. Um, Kayla is the children's minister here, she's my wife. Um, but this is a tool for parents that have kids back in Promised Land. So what we're doing now at Christ Community Church is the, the kids' lessons and the sermon go hand in hand. They mirror each other. So there are some, some questions and some key scripture listed on this handout for you. We want you guys to take this home, use it as a tool to do family discipleship with your kids. You know, we get 30, 35 minutes one day a week back in the back. That's, that's not enough. That's not enough to disciple our kids to raise them in the church. To bring them up. Because studies show that eight out of ten kids, and realistically that statistic's probably higher now, but the last study we have, eight out of ten kids that grow up in the church leave the faith by the time they reach college. And it's it's not like they're, you know, putting one foot down on the college campus and it just poop. the back of their head. No, they they get disengaged in elementary school, middle school, high school. So we need to do everything that we can to disciple our children with the word of God, because if we don't, the world will disciple them with the culture of the world, and we live in a wicked world. So please use this to your advantage. This is a free tool for you. Um, One last thing in the bulletin, there are prayer requests in there. We ask that you guys take the bulletin with you, take it home, read over it, pray for these people on the bulletin. Um, and just know that there are unspoken requests within our congregation, so please just pray for our congregation. You know, you're not going to do any, any harm by praying for this body of believers. It'll do, do us a lot of good. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to be looking at my notes a lot this morning. Um, I said this last night. It's not that I'm unprepared if I don't keep focused I I just start talking. I'll, I'll start a sentence and hope I find it along the way and you know, Kayla gets, uh, she'll roll her eyes at me when I get asked to pray when I'm not prepared to pray in a public setting because then I'll just start rambling on for God knows how long. And uh, Kayla's like, alright everybody buckle up because we're going to be here for a minute. Alright, so like I said, you know we're moving and grooving through our sermon series called the Gospel Project, and today we are covering Isaiah chapter nine, more specifically verses one through seven, and Miss Blackburn read that to you this morning. So let's just start to unpack it. Um, it's really important to note that Isaiah ends chapter eight with this great darkness or anguish or despair over these people, and starting in Chapter 9, Isaiah tells us that this darkness and despair will not be everlasting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And over the next seven verses, Isaiah packs in a lot of information. I think it's really, really important that we look at the context and the references that he's making to fully understand the point of his prophecy. So, Isaiah tells us that this gloom will not go on forever. The, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled in the future, but there will be a time when Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, will be filled with glory. And that being said, there's, I want to give you guys just a quick geography and history lesson about where, where we're talking about. So, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, Zebulon and Naphtali were sons of Jacob, which became the twelve tribes Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel and the tribes the the region they inhabited became known as as their names so this this area was in the northeastern part of Galilee west of the Jordan River on the other side was the sea you know they had a really prime spot for trade routes and everything so it was it was a pretty nice spot for them to be at but i really i really want to set the mood for what this area becomes known as throughout throughout history and around in this this area. When I say ground zero, what comes to mind? See, for for me, ground zero reminds me of 9-11. We're, we're coming up on the, the 21st anniversary of what happened on that day in New York at the Twin Towers. And I remember being in class, I was young, and I, I think I was more shocked than anything. I really didn't get a grip of what was going on. You know, we were, the first plane had hit, and we were watching it on TV, and they were, they were broadcasting there in New York, and, and all the teachers were horror-struck at what had happened, and as they're broadcasting, the second plane hits. It's a pretty devastating time for our country. And I think it's safe to say that all of us, you know, feel a little bit of emotion thinking back to that time. And there's there's other places that evoke that same pain and horror. Columbine, Auschwitz, Pearl Harbor. Just devastation. So why why do I bring this up? See, Isaiah is, is speaking of this great despair, or darkness that will befall the Israelites, the northern kingdom. And he really gets into that in verses 8 through 21. But Isaiah is given this prophecy roughly 20, 25 years before the northern kingdoms are attacked by the Assyrians, which you'll see, you know, as we, as we move along in Second Kings, we'll see that unfold. But it's important to note that history tells us that it's almost like these two northern kingdoms or two northern regions, were wiped off the face of the map, and they don't know where they went. See, when the Assyrians moved in and laid siege to this region, who they didn't kill, they chained together through hooks in their lips and drugged them back to Assyria and made them slaves. So this this region, became ground zero. Israel was, was laid to waste. It became ground zero, and that was the memory associated with this region. It was ground zero for death, destruction, pain, suffering. But as we'll see, it becomes ground zero for something drastically different. And we'll see this unfold in the next seven, next few verses. Verse two through seven, we we see a shift in what Isaiah is is talking about. He's pouring out this prophecy of the coming king, the coming Messiah. And that's where we really get a grip on God keeps his promises. We can, we can look back over the text and get an nice idea of what Isaiah is saying and at, at face value. Some of it clicks, you know, especially now we know of Jesus, it's easy to make that correlation. But Isaiah wrote this, had this prophecy roughly 700 years before Jesus, before his ministry. And I would argue that, you know, as we read this, some of this, you know, clicks, but some of it goes over our head. And I think that's safe to say with, with a lot of scripture, you know, we can, we can pick up a lot just by reading, but there's, there's some stuff that we really need to get in and dissect and really understand what he's saying to get the full grasp of what is being said. Verse 2 expands upon verse 1, stating that, that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now we know the darkness and despair that, that Isaiah is referring to as the extreme suffering that Israelites are about to endure— at the hands of the Assyrians. But the light that will shine on this land is none other than Jesus. And it's important to note that it was a mere 20 years before this darkness befalled him, but it was 700 years before the light came. I want you to keep that in mind. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, we see Matthew quoting this particular part of Scripture. See, in verse 12, John the Baptist was arrested, and, and Jesus left Judea, and he returned to Galilee, and then to the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali, thus fulfilling what God had said through Isaiah, this great light will return to this region. It's important to note that Zebulon and Naphtali carried the, the baggage that we associate with, with 9-11, or the Holocaust or Columbine. This region was, was broken. It was known for death. This is the memory associated with this area. But now we have this great light entering the scene. We have this great light bringing glory to the land, and this great light is Jesus. This region no longer becomes, or is no longer ground zero for death and destruction. It is ground zero for Jesus' ministry. Now, in verse 3, Isaiah says, You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and your people will rejoice, and rejoice like that of the harvest, and rejoice like that of the warriors dividing plunder, or dividing the spoils of war. Contextually, this, this verse is so powerful. There is just so much packed into this one verse. Not only is this a throwback to God's promise to Abraham, God promised him a son and descendants as numerous as the stars. And if you were here a few weeks ago when we preached on Abram and his son Isaac, we know that Abram was getting old. He was like, there's, there's no way. He kind of laughed about having a son in his old age. But God came through and gave him a son. And through his son was many descendants. But now this is also a foreshadowing of, of what's to come. See, Jesus is not only for the Jews, he didn't just come for the Jews, he also came for the Gentiles. And Jesus himself mentions this in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 16. He says, I have other sheep too that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. This growth of the nation of Israel that Isaiah is talking about is really the growth of the church. Jesus came, not for just Jew, but Gentile, he came for all of us. Now if you were paying attention, it, it says they will rejoice three times. And It's really, really important to get, a, get an idea of, of why he mentions that three times. Well first, we can rejoice because Jesus came for both Jew and Gentile, Jesus came for everybody, and if that doesn't get you hyped up, nothing will, right? I mean, that's something to get excited about, to know that Jesus came for all that want to believe in him, that choose to believe in him. Second, they rejoice like that of the harvest. Well, what happens at harvest time? All the needs of those people are met. They have everything that they need. And third, they rejoice like dividing of plunder. When do you divide plunder? When do you divide spoils of war? When the enemy has been defeated. Do you see what Isaiah is saying here? God sends Jesus for all that belief, Jesus fulfills all our needs, and Jesus defeats the enemy once and for all. And Isaiah goes on to confirm this in in verse 4. It says that God breaks the yoke of slavery, the oppressor's rod, lifting the burden from our shoulders. And contextually, this is is talking about the oppression that, that the Israelites were about to face, but it also points to what Jesus done on the cross. Jesus broke the bondage of slavery to to sin that we have. We no longer carry that burden, but Jesus took it on the cross. Jesus bared it all for us. He took that way off our shoulders. And he goes on further to say, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. Now, I thought this was really interesting. This was one of the parts that when I first read it, I didn't understand what he was getting at but Isaiah is referencing Gideon and the Midianites and if, if you remember the story of Gideon he was about to go to war he was vastly outnumbered and he was shaking in his boots and he's like God there's no way we're going we're gonna to overtake him and God's like you, you will and actually send home more of your men only take 300 men with you so Gideon's panicking right and Gideon inevitably overcomes the Midianites or the yeah the Midianites, and the point of Isaiah making this reference here is that god 's power is at work, not the power of man. Gideon could not have done that without the power of God, giving him the strength to do so. Verse five furthers this idea of, of victory with. Isaiah saying that the boots and uniforms stained with blood from warfare will be burned and used as fuel for the fire. Now, in that time, it was customary when, when the opposing army was, was vanquished and destroyed that they would take all their weapons of war, their chariots, their uniforms, everything, and consume them with fire. It was an ultimate, you know, just defeat. It shows ultimate defeat. Not only will Jesus bring peace through his victory, but he will also bring an end to spiritual warfare with his second coming. Verse 6, you, we are kind of familiar with. We we normally see it around Christmas time, around time of Advent. And it states that a child is born to us, a son is given. Isaiah is really prepping us for the arrival of the Messiah. He's setting the stage. And if you back up to verses, or chapter 7, verse 14 in Isaiah, he foretells that he will be born of a virgin. And, and in verse, 9, or verse 7 of chapter 9, as we are getting ready to cover, he will be a descendant of David. Now it says the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in, in verse 7 it says his peace and government will never end. So what, what does this mean other than Isaiah making Jesus out to be some big shot, this big king to be a big shot? Well, as we have seen before, there's more packed into this than what meets the eye. See, the government resting on his shoulders means that Jesus will be the governor of all things. The Son will rule all nations of the world. And now, the four titles that Isaiah listed here I think is very interesting. If you go back and, and look over them, the four titles are synonymous with God, meaning that this coming king, this Messiah, is God in the flesh. He addresses him as wonderful counselor. This king will implement supernatural wisdom. He needs no outside counsel. He is infinitely wise, and we know that as a quality of God. The second one, he just comes right out and says, mighty God. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Just ultimate power, ultimate strength. Everlasting Father. The Messiah will be a father to his people. He will compassionately care and discipline them. I think that's, a, that's one that we, we have some issues with. You know, we like to be cared for, but we don't like to be disciplined. And I'm going to come back and touch on that in a minute. But Jesus also tells us, he is our, our everlasting father. Jesus tells us that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will come for us. And through his sacrifice that he made on the cross... We are made a new creation. He is our everlasting Father. And the last one, Prince of Peace. With the return of the King, there will be peace among the nations. Sin will be banished. Not only that, those of us that know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have a little taste of that peace now because at the end of the day, no matter what we go through, we know that we are reconciled to our Heavenly Father through what Jesus has done on the cross just have a little taste of that here. How great will it be when we can fully be engulfed by that that love, grace, and peace when we stand before our Heavenly Father. Now, verse 7, which I mentioned briefly before, Jesus fulfilling prophecy by being a descendant of David. But it also fulfills God's promise to David that his descendants will rule over all nations in peace. So to recap really quick, verses one through seven, we see mention of multiple promises made by God. You know, verse three references God's promise to Abraham. Verse four is a reference to God's promise to Gideon. Verse seven is a reference to a Messiah that will rule all nations and fulfill God's promise to David. And ultimately, this Messiah was promised to us in Genesis after the fall. You know, God said that a Messiah will come and crush the head of the serpent. You'll strike his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. See, from the beginning of the fracture of creation caused by sin, God already had a plan in place to send us a Savior. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus' ministry, before Jesus was born but yet we see a prophecy given to him by God which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's that's pretty amazing, right? You know, we can we can look at scripture and we can see that God keeps his promises. We have Isaiah speaking about God's plan 700 years before it unfolds. It's really something to to marvel at. But it's it's pretty easy to get wrapped up in life and to lose sight of the promises made to us by God. Especially when we're hit with some really tough trials or some really difficult times. Some difficult news. At least that's been the case for me. See, I uh, I grew up in the church. Um, I went to church with my grandma every Sunday. But I don't think I really had a grip on what it meant to be a Christian until I was a freshman in college. I was sitting in class beside my best friend and there's a couple weeks left to class and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, Luke, this, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I said, I, I don't care if I'm poor, I don't have a good job, I don't care if I'm living on the streets as long as I'm out sharing the gospel doing ministry for God's kingdom, that's what I need to do with my life. So I've, I finished out the last couple of weeks of class, and within a, within a month, I was hooked up with a, a small Christian hardcore punk band, and, and we were going on tour and, and doing street ministry to a group of people that felt like outcasts of society. They felt like outcasts from the church because they had facial piercings or tattoos or because the music they listened to, they'd been burned by the church. They didn't know genuine love and compassion. But we were able to reach those people. And I thought, you know, God's keeping his promise to me. You know, I had the opportunity to do this, and I'd done that for a few years. I mean, ironically, I I was broke living on the streets in a van with seven other guys for— couple years. It was, God has a funny way of doing things. He, he, uh, he really laid it on thick there. But eventually I grew up. You know, I went back to school. I got my degree, Shawnee. I got a, got a real job at the post office. I took on the role of being a father. I married this sweet babe here in uh, the second row. And uh, I was doing ministry here at church. I was like, man, I got this Christian thing down. But in reality, I had God's promise all dolled up with living my best life now. I really did. I was living the American dream, man. I had the wife, the kid, the great job, doing stuff at church. It was, everything was going smooth. And then tragedy struck My wife and I found out that our daughter had been a victim of abuse for years, right under our nose, and we had no idea. When I tell you, we lost sight of God's promise real quick. We felt like every promise God had ever made us had been broken, it's, a, it's an understatement. We lost sight of the victory that he had over the enemy we felt like every promise had been broken. I mean, we were genuinely crushed with anguish. Our daughter at the time, when we found out she wasn't wasn't very old, this abuse had went on for years from when she was just an infant. You know, I remember just being a hollow shell, just going through the motions. Just, you know, I'd go to work, and waiting on customers or whatever. But all I could think about in my head was, God, how can you let this happen? This, this can't be part of your plan. This can't be part of your promise. But it took, it took some time. You know, if you've been here before, Scott has talked about somebody coming in and, and delivering a message that you really can't explain. My wife and I, this was in November, just a couple weeks after we had found out, maybe a month after we had found out, we were at a little birthday party for a girl here at church, and it was out at Shawnee Lodge, and Kayla was walking one of the ladies here from from church out to her van, and we really hadn't told anybody what was going on. We had told our, our family and our close friends, and Kayla really confides this woman and as they were walking out to the car, Kayla was telling her what had had happened, what we were going through. And this lady's praying with Kayla and they get done praying and this lady that they don't know walks up with a bouquet of fresh sunflowers. Hands them to Kayla. She says, I don't know why, but God told me to bring you these. And then she turns around, gets in her car, and leaves. And Miss Patty looks at Kayla, and just tears coming down her face, and she's like, Kayla, you don't understand. And Kayla's just standing there baffled like this lady just gave her, a, okay, a fresh sunflowers. She's like, no, I, I don't. She said, Kayla, sunflowers turn, follow the sun wherever it goes. I was still inside. Kayla came in, tears streaming down her face. It's at that moment that we realized Jesus' victory over sin was so complete. Even though we face difficult times of spiritual warfare, our suffering is what refines us to better reflect the image of Christ. We clung to the cross. That's that's all we had. I'll tell you that 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 difficult time drove us deeper into our faith. Kayla and I ended up pursuing our our Bible degrees at Liberty University. We overcame. We, We both graduated in December of 2020. And from that, we are now in positions that we would have not been in otherwise. Kayla's now the children's minister here at church. I'm standing up here trying to learn how to be a pastor. I don't, I don't think we would be here had we not went through that suffering. Since then, we've, we've been hit with a lot of other difficulties. You know, I was, I was hit by a bus delivering mail last year. I nearly lost my life. Praise the Lord that I'm still here. There's a reason I'm still here. Kayla found out that she had thyroid cancer. Praise the Lord that the doctors found it soon enough and removed her thyroid and was able to remove it before I had a chance to spread. And in the midst of that, I was standing at the threshold of a new job that would give me an opportunity to do ministry here in Portsmouth nearly full time. And right at the last second, the rug was pulled out from under me. And, you know, it left us questioning, God, do you really keep your promises? We keep going through trials. And it—it it, sometimes it feels like he's not there, that he doesn't care, that, you know, we just don't have that connection. We're still working through those difficult times, but, you know, we can— we can look back and we know that God does indeed keep his promise. Just because it doesn't happen the way that we want it to, God works at his own pace. See, the issue is that we feel that God doesn't keep his promise. We feel, we feel, we feel. Feelings are fleeting. Feelings are fleeting. Cover to cover. In this book, we know that God keeps his promises. We have the evidence right here. I don't care how fleeting your feelings are. I don't care how you feel. But in this book, we know God keeps his promises. I'm not standing up here to to tell you my... My difficult times to throw myself a pity party. I know each and every one of us has faced difficult time that's left us wondering, God, do you really keep your promises? But I'm telling you these, these things in the hopes that my testimony will bring solace to somebody here this morning that's really going through the trenches and really struggling, really fighting right now. Like Isaiah said, the darkness is not forever. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. That light is Jesus. We're promised that. But we're not promised a comfortable life. Now, you know, if you were not promised all the money in the world, we're not promised the best health, we're not promised to have the best jobs, we're not promised all this wealth, but if you have those things, it's not necessarily bad, and if you have those things, come see me after church, please. I could, I could use a little help. No, I'm kidding. But we're not promised a comfortable life where everything is picture perfect. See, the man that we are to model, Jesus Christ, was beaten, abused, ridiculed, spat on, nailed to a tree, and he was the innocent son of God. I'll tell you right now, I'm chief among sinners, I deserve so much worse, but I've been promised the greatest gift I could ever imagine. And that is redemption through Jesus. We can look even further. The the disciples, they were all brutally martyred for their faith in Jesus. You know, Peter was crucified upside down. John was was boiled alive in oil. It actually didn't kill him, so they, they sent him off to exile. They suffered for their king. Paul is abundantly clear that the path of righteousness is not an easy one, but it is worth everything, is it not? We're promised so much. We're on this earth 120 years, max. Max. the suffering and things that we'll endure here is just a blip, just a drop in the bucket for eternity that we are promised with our Savior if we put our faith in Jesus. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, I kept coming back to a song by one of my favorite bands. They're not around anymore. They, They broke up a couple years ago, but they were a Christian metal band from from Texas who would have thought that a Christian metal band would be you know my favorite band i, I don 't look like I listen to Love all the time I know I know but they they attended a pretty renowned church in Texas, and that church was led by a man named matt Chandler and uh, if you don 't know who Matt Chandler is, look him up he uh, this this week he did get in a little bit of hot water. Nothing nothing too crazy, but what he done was arguably pretty stupid. Um, and I talked to Matt Rawlings about it. I was like, hey, I'm going to talk about Matt Chandler, and you know he's in a little bit of hot water this week. Should I pull that out of my sermon? And Matt's like, you know, a, a broken clock's still right twice a day. If if we can't if we can't quote sinners, the only one that we can quote is Jesus. We can't even quote Paul. Paul claimed to be a chief among sinners. But if you don't know who Matt Chandler is, I suggest you look him up, and man, I tell you, he is lit up with the Spirit. He's a way better preacher than me, and he knows it. Every video he starts off with, I hope that this helps you in your walk with God, but God has placed you in a local church under a pastor in your area. So just use this as a resource, as a supplemental resource. Don't let it take place of your local church. So that means you all are stuck with me. But he has, he has quite a wild testimony, and he's written quite a few books. It really takes these big theological ideas and puts them in layman terms and makes it really easy to understand. But all, all that being said, this uh, this band took a sermon series of his and turned it into a concept album. So the whole album, 12 songs, each song is a sermon packed into a three, three and a half minute song. It's really, really powerful. And the song that I kept coming back to is is titled Simply Grace. And this is the, the perspective of the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking to Man, in general, but man that is questioning God's promise. And the lyrics go like this. Just so you know, we intend to spill all over creation, but for some reason you are not making the connection that includes you. Which of our actions have ever led you to believe our intentions are to exclude? What makes you think that we exude anything other than unmerited favor toward the entirety of your endeavors? Historically, when have we ever proved to be anything less than your ever-victorious Savior? Was it in the beginning when we made man in our likeness? Or on the ark of Noah when we saved you from the torrents? Perhaps it was when we promised the land of milk and honey or delivered you from your enemies and closed on them the sea. When has God been anything less than our ever-victorious Savior? Like I said, from cover to cover, God has kept his promise to us, and we have the evidence right here. And we see it time and time again. Some of you may be in the audience this morning, and you might have doubts. You know, how can I trust that? How can I trust the Bible? I ask that you please come talk to me. My, My degree is in biblical apologetics. I can show you that what is written in this book, we can indeed trust. Isaiah tells us that there is darkness and despair, but it is not forever. There is a light, and that light is Jesus, and we can rest confidently in knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God, we can rest assured that that God will carry out his promise of sending Jesus a second time. We have God's passionate commitment to do so. And it even tells us in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, that God is not a man. He is not human. He does not change his mind. He keeps his promises. We can rest assured that Jesus will come a second time. But until that time comes, we got some serious work to do. We're, we're living in a in a time in a culture consumed by darkness and despair. We live in a very broken world. You turn on the news, you don't see any feel-good stories, you just see pain, suffering, blasphemy. It's heartbreaking. We as Christians, we're to reflect the life of Christ. We are to bring light into the darkness that shines so bright, bringing glory to God. And I pray that we shine so bright in a culture. I pray that we share the gospel in a culture that's so broken. I pray that we can share love, to one another, agape, sacrificial love to one another, so much so that this broken world that's outside looking in can see it and say, I want that too. I want what they have. Because that person looks whole and complete, and we are made whole and complete by what Jesus has done. We need to reflect that. We are to bear that image. We are to set an example. of the world can see it just by the way that we act, that we are saved by God's grace. I pray that we see a genuine repentance among a broken world. I'll say say one more thing, and then we'll wrap this thing up. You know, earlier I talked about 9-11, Auschwitz. Columbine. When I say Portsmouth, Ohio, what do you think of? For a lot of us, we call this area home. I grew up in this area my entire life, but let's, let's be real honest for a second. We're a church nestled in a community that has been ravaged by a great darkness. There's been multiple TV specials about it. Portsmouth was ground zero for the pill mill and opiate epidemic. It has left a wake of destruction for generations and likes that we could have never imagined. It's heartbreaking. I would say that you know each and every one of us has some, had somebody close to us that's been affected by this in some way, shape, or form. Unfortunately, that's what this area has kind of been known as. But Portsmouth doesn't have to be known for that. Portsmouth doesn't have to be known for addiction and despair. You know, we got a lot of things trying to help out in our community for those people, but if it's not backed by Jesus Christ, it will fail. Our town, our area can be ground zero for revival. We are to be the light in the darkness of this community. We are to bear the image of Christ. And my hope is that we can come together as a body of believers. There's a church on every corner in this town and I pray that we can put our differences aside and we can come together as a body of believers and genuinely reflect the light of Christ, the life of Christ in a community that is so broken. God keeps his promises. And all we're asked to do as Christians is fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, to share the gospel, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another with sacrificial love. And we can start right here in our community. Can we not? we have ample opportunity to do so. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.